You are now listening to the October 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Transforming Grace. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today we're going to share the story of two kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. King Zimri's story appears in 1 Kings 16, verses 15 to 20, and King Amri's in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. King Zimri and King Amri were the fifth and sixth kings of Israel, respectively. From our last story, some of the listeners may recall how Zimri became king of Israel after assassinating King Elah. This happened in the 27th year of King Asa in Judah, the southern kingdom. As soon as he sat on the throne, Zimri completely eradicated all the men in the house of Baasha in Elah, whether they were family, relatives, or friends. The circumstances surrounding how Zimri became king were rather murky. At the time, the people of Israel were camped near Gibbethon, a city that belonged to the Philistines. They were about to go to war against that city, and that is when they heard the news about the death of King Elah. The killing took place back in Tirzah, away from the battleground. King Elah did not accompany his people to go to war, but stayed behind in Tirzah. He was actually getting drunk when Zimri killed him. After the killing, Zimri declared himself king of Israel. As you might imagine, the people of Israel had a tough time accepting Zimri as their king. In fact, they did not. Instead, they made Amri the commander of their army, at the time as king over Israel. What did that mean? Well, That meant there were now two kings in Israel, and between the two, Amri clearly had the support of the people. Amri therefore decided to confront the situation and marched against Zimri. He withdrew the troop from Gibbethon and went to Tirzah, where Zimri was, in the same city where he had killed Elah. King Amri besieged the city to bring Zimri down from the throne. When Zimri saw the troops coming at him, he got scared and lost courage. He went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house with himself in it. He died in the fire. That was merely the seventh day after Zimri had declared himself king after killing Elah. The Bible assesses Zimri, who reigned only for seven days, as a wicked person that followed the way of Jeroboam. This is what is said in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 19. So he died because of his sins which he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he did, making Israel sin. The man that brought down the house of Jeroboam and became the fifth king of Israel, in the end, killed himself in a fire. As the Bible attests, Zimri did evil in the sight of God and committed sins by walking in the way of Jeroboam. He worshipped idols and caused Israel to commit the same sin. After only seven days in power, he was punished by God and was brought down from the throne. After Zimri's suicide, Amri became the sixth king of Israel. However, the trouble was not over for him. There was someone else. While half of the Israelites followed Amri, the other half followed Tibni, an army general. The followers of Tibni tried to make him king. The two factions engaged in fierce battles for three years to take control over the kingship. Eventually, the fight was over when Amri's army succeeded in killing Tibni. Then, Amri became the uncontested king of Israel. 
we can piece together the chronology of Amri's reign in Israel by making reference to the years of King Asa in Judah. The Bible records in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23, that in the 31st year of Asa, the king of Judah, Amri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Additionally, we have the record of Amri becoming the king over Israel in the 36th year of Asa, the king of Judah. That indicates the time when Amri reigned Israel as the uncontested king after Tibni was killed. Amri became king after Zimri died in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned over Israel for 12 years. The Bible says he stayed in Tirzah for six of those 12 years. As we learned, Tirzah was the capital of Israel back then, the same city where Zimri burned the king's house and took his own life. It was also where Amri and Tibni had a civil war for three years over the kingship. Because of that, Amri sought to move the capital. You might say he wanted a fresh start. He searched for a new location to build a new capital to replace the damaged Tirzah. In the end, Amri acquired the hill of Samaria from Shemer, who owned the vast expanse of that land. The Bible tells us that he bought the land for two talents. He then proceeded to build a city on the hill. As a side note, the Bible explains that the name Samaria is taken after Shemer's name, the owner of the hill. Samaria sits almost 300 feet high and there is nothing around it. Amri apparently appreciated such geographical advantage. Anyone that wanted to attack the city would have the steep hill to contend with. The geography would give the city strategic advantage when trying to defend itself. The Bible does not offer us the detailed record of events surrounding Amri's reign. Nonetheless, it is possible to identify from the records of neighboring countries and from reading the inscriptions on his tombstone. The overall records indicate that he made Israel rich and strong internally and internationally during his reign. Historical books suggest that the time Amri reigned was the richest and strongest period in history of Israel. He gained large profits by taking control of the trade routes with Samaria as the central hub. With strong army and economy, Amri received tributes from surrounding countries. How does the Bible assess Amri, who made Israel rich and strong? The assessment of Amri in the Bible is dark and grave in contrast to his human accomplishments. Here is what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Bible says that he walked in the way of Jeroboam, dwelling in the sin of worshiping idols. The Bible also clarifies that he behaved more wickedly than all who preceded him. Such evil nature of him caused the Lord God of Israel to become enraged. Amri may have been a successful king in the sight of humans, however spiritually he was an evil king who did not walk in the ways of God and dwelled in the sin of idol worship. When we face God, success is defined differently. The world looks at the outward accomplishments, but God looks at the heart of a person. We'll continue on with the story of Kings next time. Have a blessed week.
strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter. Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is How I Speak. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever wish you could take back something you've said? Well, I think we'll all have less a problem with that if we listen to what James has to say to us in James chapter 1, verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be 
quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Sometimes I like to read it this way. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and even slower to anger. Statistics show the average person spends one-fifth of their entire life talking. And at the end of the day, the average number of words, if we put, we put it into print, would equal one 100-page book. That's how much we speak. The statistics continue to reveal that at the end of a year, the average person speaks enough words that if they were bound to make 132 100-page books. That might be more books than you have even in your library. And if you do the math, that amounts to 8,580 100-page books by the age of 65. And I was trying to think, 8,580 books, how many books do I have in my library? Now, I have more books than you can imagine, and I've never settled down to count them, but I'm thinking, 8,000? I don't know that I have 8,580 books. Or if you're not in the 100-page books and you're more of a 200-page book person, that would be 4,290 pages. That's a lot of talking. And we start these words early on. We encourage our babies to talk, don't we? We want them to speak, so we coach them. We reward them. We uh, are so excited when we hear them say the word daddy or mama. But by age two or three, <laughs> we're thinking, what on earth has we done? This child never stops speaking. We have a two-year-old granddaughter. We have three uh, but our two-year-old, Gran, uh, she has a very large vocabulary. She's very much ahead for her age. Doesn't everybody say that about your grandkids or your kids? But she really does have a great vocabulary. And uh, she uh, likes to communicate. I know she'd love to speak in, in long paragraphs. So she'll start using words, and then, you know, she'll, she'll say something understandable, and then she'll just, and blah, 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 because uh, she wants to speak in a sentence, or, I mean, a long, almost a paragraph like we do. And sometimes we have to say, hey, now, slow down, little bear, slow down, use your words, use your words, use your words. James is exhorting us how to use our words. Sometimes words can be really funny. One of my friends, who shall remain anonymous, but his initials are RH, once sent me the following message. He says, I pray you are feeling better. I have two questions. Do you know of a family that needs a turkey? Who is going to bring me to the church in the morning? So he's like, I'm the turkey. Are you going to bring me to church in the morning? I like people who make me laugh. I have a sense of humor. I like to laugh. I love uh, to see the funny side of things. That's just where I'm at. I love it. I remember somebody in the church I grew up in. I was a very young pastor and I was I was an associate pastor in this church and let me speak one of, you know, once in a while. And they got on me for, for humor. You shouldn't be humorous when you speak. And I was thinking, I'm not trying. It just happens. You know, I don't write things down. I, it just flows out of me. I like humor. It makes me, you know, happy. Steve uh, Farrar relates the time that Albert Einstein was invited to speak at a banquet held in his honor at uh, a Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Hundreds of people, he says, from all over the country crowded in an auditorium to hear what Einstein had to say. When it came time for him to speak, the greatest physicist in the world walked up to the podium, solemnly took a look at the people all around him, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I am very sorry, but I have nothing to say. Well, and he sat down. The audience was shocked. I mean, 
for a few seconds, they sat there, and, and then Einstein got back up, and he spoke again, and he said, in case I have something to say, I will come back up. And they sat there, and he never said anything, and they dismissed the meeting. Six months later, so the story goes, he sent the president of the college this message. Now I have something to say. And another dinner was held, and Einstein made a speech. Now, I'm sure that Einstein didn't have James' exhortation in mind when James said, be slow to speak. But certainly, in this case, Einstein was being slow to speak. Your words can have a very powerful first impression. I don't know if you consciously realize it or not, but when you make a phone call and uh, a business answers the phone, in 15 seconds, you make a decision whether or not you want to do business with that outfit. In 15 seconds. I mean, think about how important those 15 seconds are. I mean, you know, if somebody sounds like a crab in the, hello, may I help you? I mean, already, it doesn't take 15 minutes to realize, uh, I don't like this company, right? Or you get that answering machine. We're all annoyed. I mean, who likes it when an answering machine comes on and it says, if you want this, press one. If you want that, press two. If, if you want to hear everything all over again, is that annoying? And if you could, you would never do business with that insurance company again <laughs> or that pharmacy, whatever it might be that you have to deal with. 15 seconds to make an impression. That words are very important. The book of Proverbs in the Bible has a lot to say about words. In fact, it mentions communication 150 times. Words are powerful. Think about the, the powerful way that words have impacted the world. Words and sermons have been used by God to change people's lives. Bold, brave words have been used to stir people up. And nations, great nations, have been founded. Words little children hear, words of kindness and care and nurture, go on to bless them the rest of their lives. But words can also be used to incite horrendous evil. Lies can dupe millions. Words of hate have raised up dictators like Hitler, who have ended up killing millions and millions of lives. Starcastic words can brand a child to insecurity for the rest of their lives, or they spend the rest of their lives trying to overcome that. And harsh words have destroyed many a marriage. I would say... That's something people are struggling right now with. Your words, what you say, how you communicate. Being close to somebody you love, but needing some space. And your words are beginning to get you down. The words you speak can have an incredible potential for good. Your words can nourish a person, but your words can also destroy somebody. As much as we all talk, we're bound to get ourselves into trouble, um, and we wish that we'd spoken a little bit slower. I've never regretted something I shouldn't have said. <laughs> have you? In Psalm 141, verse 3, David said, Take control of what I say, O Lord, and keep my lips sealed. Careless words, uh, quick, angry words can't be taken back. I wish that when I send an email and I had a second thought, I could retract it. How about you guys? Or, you know, I send a text and I can't undo the text. All you can do is, please disregard what I just sent you. Please don't. And what do you do if somebody says that to you? You go back up and read what you should disregard, don't you? So in Psalm 141, verse 3, David says, Take control of what I say, O Lord, keep my lips sealed. Proverbs 21, 23. I'm just thinking, write these down. Go back over them later, okay? Proverbs 21, 23 says, 
He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. Amen? He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. And if that isn't registering, the NLG translates it this way. If you keep your mouth shut, you will stay out of trouble. I like that. I understand that. Keep your mouth shut, you'll stay out of trouble. I've been on many boards, and I'm thinking, why has this uh, Christian organization or church organization asked me to be a board member? I don't know anything about what's going on, but I've been asked. So you know what I do for at least the first year? You know what I do? I don't say anything. I just listen. Because I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I'm really practicing uh, what Proverbs says, if you keep your mouth shut, you will stay out of trouble. Nobody will know what I don't know if I keep my mouth shut. James is saying you better think before you speak. We want to be led by the Spirit when we talk. We don't want to just be kind of knee-jerk and say things that are going to hurt because you can't take your words back. I want to encourage you to be particularly slow to speak when you are angry. Be particularly slow to speak when you are angry. All of us have gotten into trouble with hasty words or cutting remarks. We've all done that. Someone has said, if you're right, you don't need to lose your temper. If you're wrong, you can't afford to lose it. Being too quick to speak can get us into a whole lot of trouble. Proverbs 18 verse 19 warns us that angry words can ruin friendships. Maybe that's happened to you. It says this, it's harder to make amends with an offended friend than to capture a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with iron bars. Be careful how you treat your friends. Be careful what you say to your friends because it's hard to win back a friend if you have offended them with what you've said. It's very clear. It's important for us to be slow to speak when we're angry or we're offended. Proverbs 12, 16 says, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Fool's quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. I've never seen angry words diffuse a situation. I've never seen that happen. Back in James 1 verse 20, where we started, he said, you know, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, for the anger of men does not accomplish the righteousness of God. My getting angry generally is not going to do uh, anything towards what God really righteously wants to do. Just wait Take time, be slow to get angry. Someone has said an insult is like mud. It comes off a lot easier when it's dry. Just wait, take your time, don't knee-jerk respond and say something that you're going to regret. A lot of times this kind of restraint uh, can bring peace to what would become a very volatile situation. One of the best, if not the greatest examples of this in the Old Testament is a woman named Abigail. Have you ever heard of Abigail? I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm going to read the whole chapter because we've got to get the story. It is the illustration of what we're talking about right now. Abigail, probably one of the greatest examples of somebody who was able to have restraint 
and bring peace to a very volatile situation. 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, we're going to look at verse 2. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a wealthy man from Paran who owned property near the village of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man was Nabal. Now, Nabal's name, right in the margin, Nabal's name means fool. Now, I don't know who would name your baby fool, but mom and dad, you know, they had the child and said, what do you want to know? I don't know, fool. But his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And, and she was a sensible and beautiful woman, but Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was mean and dishonest in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel. He told them to deliver this message, peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I'm told that you are shearing your sheep and goats. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you this is true. So would you please be kind to us since we have come uh, to a time of celebration? Please give us any provisions you might have on hand. David's young men gave this message to Nabal and they waited for a reply. Here's Nabal's reply. Who is this fellow David? Now you gotta remember David's already been anointed king. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. That's insulting, isn't it? Should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who've come uh, from who knows where? So <laughs> David's messengers returned and told him what Nabal had said. How does David respond? Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard the equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent me from the wilderness to talk to all our master and he insulted him. But David's men were very good to us and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You better think fast, for there's going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Abigail lost no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred raisin cakes. She had a, a lot of freezer space, didn't she? Or her own bakery, I'm not sure. 100 raisin cakes and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and she said to her servants, go ahead, I'll follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming towards her. David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he's repaired me evil for good. May God deal with me severely if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all the, this blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the messages you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies be cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present I've brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with an everlasting dynasty 
for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Uh, This is just an aside, but this is the first prophecy that David would have an everlasting kingdom. Very first prophecy. It comes from Abigail. Isn't that cool? Even when you are chased, she kept saying, even when you are chased by those who seek your life, that was Saul who kept chasing David. Even when you are chased by those who seek your life, you are safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then you won't have to carry your conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me. David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murdering the man and carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her gifts and told her, return home in peace. We will not kill your husband. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal had thrown a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell uh, him anything about her meeting with David until the next morning. The next morning, when he was sober, she told him what had happened. And as a result, he had a stroke, and he lay on his bed paralyzed. About 10 days later, the Lord struck him, and he died. After he died, the, you don't want to know uh, a little additional fact to this When David found out that Nabal had died, he went and asked Abigail to marry him. A very wise choice. Amen? Well, I want you to think about this. There could have been two Nabals that day. There could have been two fools, Nabal and David. David could have rushed out in anger and done a foolish thing. The Bible says a fool is quick-tempered. But a wise person stays calm when insulted. Proverbs 12, verse 16. That's exactly what God wanted David to do. A fool is quick-tempered. Nabal was a fool. But a wise person stays calm. David's knee-jerk reaction was to strike out and, you know, in this case, I'm going to kill that fool. I'm going to take care of everything he owns. But instead, here was a peacemaker. Here was Abigail. <laughs> the last half of Proverbs 15:1 says, "Harsh words make tempers flare." Harsh words, Proverbs 15:1, make tempers flare. The word for anger in, in that verse right there means uh, it means nostril. What? Harsh words make anger nostril because it's talking about how you look. Hebrew is a very picturesque language. And when you get angry, your nostrils flare, don't they? <laughs> oh, that's what happens. It also means to start breathing heavily. And that's the way David was enabled. By God, if, if he's not dead, next morning I'm... It says, harsh words make tempers flare. Nabal's harsh words to David immediately made David's temper flare. But Abigail personifies the truth at the beginning of Proverbs 15.1, which says, a gentle answer deflects anger. A gentle answer, a soft answer deflects anger. Abigail's words and attitude were effective in preventing a disaster. Something she says, David, you will regret for the rest of your life. When things calm down and you think about what you've done, you will regret acting in anger. You won't regret pulling back your anger and just not taking the insult Personally, remember 
An insult will brush off when it's dry. The Bible declares something you need to know. Listen to this. It says, it is a person's glory to overlook an insult. A wise person is patient, but it is a person, is that person's glory to overlook an insult. And that verse is found in Proverbs 19, verse 11. There's so much wisdom in Proverbs about how we communicate, how we handle our attitude when we speak, and especially when we're angered. It's a glory. Your patience leads to long-suffering. The word for long-suffering in Hebrew is another word. Hey, we got this nose thing going again. It means a long nose. What does it mean? a long nose mean? It's talking about this. It takes a long time for the nose to get red in anger. Some people, you notice when they get really angry, you know, their body starts giving them away and you can just see maybe their neck turns, you know, you see their neck turning red or their face turns red. Hebrew says it takes, there's a long nose. It takes a long time for somebody who is patient to get angry. And it's the glory of a man to overlook an insult. You know, it's like the glory of God, isn't it? How many insults has God overlooked in our lives? How many times of what you've done could make God very angry, but God has been long-suffering. God isn't in heaven <laughs> angry with you. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want to hurt you. He'll overlook insults. He understands that sometimes his little kids need to slow down they need to learn how to use their words. Smart people know how to hold their tongue. Their grandeur is to forgive one another. A wise person doesn't carry a chip on their shoulder. They don't hold on to a wrong that's been done to them. God, our Father, doesn't deal with us in an angry way. God's words to us are words of loving correction. Yes, there are times when God disciplines us. There are, God, there are times when God has a righteous anger. But I mean, how many times can you separate your fleshly anger from a really righteous anger? Usually a righteous anger has to do with somebody, someone else's cause or someone else's hurt. And you're upset for them or injustice or something like that. But an unrighteous anger usually has to do, it's all about me, me, me. What somebody said, somebody has offended me. They've said something about my reputation. My spouse, you know, they know I'm tired of hearing them say that. You know, you need to just, just be slow to speak. And I would say, quick, quick to love, quick, quick to share words of encouragement. Only the Holy Spirit can give us the power to do what the scripture is exhorting us to do. It's the Holy Spirit's power. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, right? That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so as we stay in the word and as we ask God, please, Lord, control me, keep me, keep me under control. God will do that for us because this is God's plan. He says, use your words, use your words, use your words, but use them very carefully. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you give us such wise counsel, very practical stuff. We thank you for a woman like Abigail who personifies wisdom in the midst of a very volatile situation. We want to be like her when we grow up. <laughs> we want to be like her in her wisdom, and we want to be like David who stops and doesn't move forward and do something and go on to do something that he would very much regret. Keep us from these things we ask. Keep us from making these mistakes. 
through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is the program Transforming Grace. I want to give a special welcome to all the listeners of Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. I'm Leslie Martin, and I'm thrilled to be with you today. I'm also very grateful for the opportunity to share my book with you called Transforming Grace. It has been my joy to serve and through my church, Calvary Phoenix, partner with Heart and Soul Ministries for over 20 years. Heart and Soul has an amazing ministry in sharing the gospel message around the world. Join me now as I share this personal message with you about God's unending grace and love for His children, transforming grace. One of the things that we can count on is that we're going to experience many changes throughout our lives. Our work changes and where we live may change. We experience change as we grow older and our children start their own families. You may be a young adult who can't wait to get out there and change the world. Perhaps you've lived a few decades and you have seen many changes in your life, some for the good and some for the worse. Whoever we are and whatever we have encountered, 
we have all experienced change. By far the best and most radical change that has happened to me was when God turned everything around and gave me a whole new life through His grace. When God's grace first dawned on me, I was a young college student with no idea how much His grace would transform everything in my life. Grace made an initial, radical difference in my relationship with God. Before I understood God's grace, I had a spiritual ache, a longing to know that He loved me and that I could have assurance of salvation. Even though I was deeply religious and devout, my faith was dry and I felt a million miles away from God. I didn't have any hope that I would go to heaven someday. I was caught in a treadmill of trying to change for the good, but only finding myself making no progress. I was desperate for love, acceptance, and assurance, but instead I felt like a spiritual failure. The strict, legalistic church I had grown up in didn't have answers to my questions or assurance that I could know that I was saved. All that my teachers and pastors could say was, just do the best you can to keep the rules and be a good girl. Hopefully, you'll make it to heaven. But one morning, as I was reading my Bible, God's grace shone through the fog of religious legalism. I was completely astonished to read And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 11-13 a quiet thought came to me. Do you believe in Jesus? Of course I believe, I responded. Then you can know you are saved. My church had told me I couldn't know. The best I could do was hope that I'd make it to heaven. The fog of legalism and the lies of uncertainty evaporated. In that moment, I knew I was saved, even though my church had taught me that I couldn't know. The Bible said I could know and that I was going to spend eternity with God. What I didn't know at that time was how radical God's grace would be in transforming not only my future destination, but everything in my life. Understanding God's grace eventually led my husband and me out of cultic legalism and gave us the strength and faith we needed to leave the church that our families had been a part of for four generations. We temporarily lost our relationships with family and friends during that time as they shunned us for leaving what they thought was the only true church. But since then, God's grace has worked its miracle in many of their lives as well, and we have seen all our family and many from that cultic denomination transformed by grace. Understanding God's grace has challenged our thinking, our relationships to others, and every part of our lives. Such a small word, grace, from such a big God, was essential to my understanding God's love for me so that I could love Him and others freely with my whole heart. I had religious, moral training, but without grace, I didn't have the freedom to give or receive the love that would give me hope, peace, and strength for every day. God's amazing grace changes and will continue to change everything. As you think about the things that we're going to be talking about, the lives of the women at the well, the woman caught in adultery, and others that we'll mention, ask yourself, how has God's grace transformed my life? My prayer for you is to be able to embrace this great big God, the God of transforming grace. When God's grace comes into a person's life, His grace transforms everything. That statement may seem too wide and deep a claim at first, but as we come to understand what grace is all about and experience God's grace for ourselves, we will find that His grace truly makes everything new in our lives. The men and women of the Bible who came to know God's grace 
were completely changed by it. We can see the incredible grace of God in transforming lives in people like the Apostle Paul, a former persecutor of Christians, Peter, a man who denied Jesus publicly, and Mary Magdalene, a woman involved in the occult who had been possessed by seven demons before Jesus set her free. These examples, and many others throughout the Bible, show us that God will love and accept anyone, no matter what they have done, if they will accept the gift of His loving grace. You may not have a very good idea of what grace is all about. You may have heard Christians use the word, but it's unclear exactly what they mean. On the other hand, if you are a Christian, you're probably familiar with the term grace. You've heard pastors talk about grace, and you've sung dozens of hymns and worship songs thanking God for His grace. Yet even Christians can have an incomplete or fuzzy understanding of God's grace. The Bible words translated as grace in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek are nearly the same. They have meanings such as kindness, favor, extending of favor, often when it is neither expected or deserved. Grace has elements of kindness and mercy, yet is an even more astonishing expression of love. When a person receives mercy, he is not punished for his wrongdoing. Mercy says, I won't punish you. Grace goes beyond mercy. Grace says, I will take your punishment for you and pour undeserved blessings into your life. Mercy doesn't give us the consequences we deserve. Grace gives us blessings that we don't deserve. To really understand and appreciate God's transforming grace, we have to see it in contrast to the mess we have made in our lives. God's grace shines the brightest when we see our dark, hopeless condition apart from His grace. Most of us will honestly admit that we have said hurtful and hateful things we wish we could take back, and we have made selfish choices and hurt others in the process. We may have lied, cheated, and taken that which doesn't belong to us. We may have been sexually immoral and addicted to pornography. We may have hurt other people's reputations by hearing something about them, and without checking to see if it's really true, we have believed the worst and even passed along the lie to someone else. Some of us have been abusers, alcoholics, drug addicts, or criminals. Still others of us have been religious or moral hypocrites. We may be tempted to close this book in disgust because we don't want someone telling us that our lives are anything other than good and upstanding. Stay with me here. Don't quit. Whether we care to admit it or not, each of us has a terrible problem. We're what the Bible calls sinners. Even the best among us doesn't have a shred of hope without God's grace. God says that sinners cannot be with Him. Sinners will not go to heaven but will face eternal punishment apart from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Every one of us has earned a paycheck from God because of our sin. The paycheck reads death. We're in big trouble with God because we're sinners. But the good news is that God loves sinners. God loves you and he loves me. He doesn't want anyone to suffer eternal punishment, and He has made a way for His love to prevail and for us to escape judgment and experience life forever with Him. That way is called His grace. In the Bible, we find that God explains grace very simply. In Ephesians 2.7, the Apostle Paul wrote, In the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace in its most basic definition is God's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's not that God is just kind. He showed his kindness towards us by sending Jesus to take our punishment. Jesus took our wages, the wages of sin, death. Jesus died for us. God's heart is kindness he sees our miserable predicament, and He has made His grace the way for us to escape eternal punishment for our sins. 
Christ Jesus took our punishment when he died on the cross for us. Sin's wage is judgment for what we've done, death. But Jesus took the death we deserve. You probably know that Christianity is symbolized by a cross. Why a cross? Because Jesus died for you and me on a cross. His death was in my place and your place. If we accept God's grace, His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, we will not be punished and we will be given life forever. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.22 On the cross, Jesus' hands were pierced with nails. His hands had never done anything to be punished by piercing, but our hands have done harsh and hateful things. His feet were nailed to the cross. His feet had never taken him anywhere he shouldn't go, but our feet have taken us the wrong direction. The Bible says all of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. When Jesus hung on the cross, his head was crowned with thorns, yet he had never thought an impure or evil thought. We, however, have had many shameful thoughts. He took the punishment for us. It would be enough to be pardoned from our guilt and escape the deadly consequences of our sin, but grace goes even farther. Jesus took our punishment, which we deserve, and offers us the gift of eternal life with him, which we don't deserve. That's grace. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8-9, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you could be made rich. What a privilege it has been sharing my book, Transforming Grace, with you. I hope that you have enjoyed our time together as God has revealed His unending grace through His scripture and promises to us. I want to again thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for asking me to be a part of their special ministry that continues to reach people with the gospel message around the world. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
hearts of sinful men. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.